Hello everyone and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. This week's podcast is brought to you by Yamaha Motorcycles. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance by checking it out at yamahamotorsports.com or see it for yourself at your local dealer. This podcast is also brought to you by the new state-of-the-art Schuberth C5. The flip-up C5 blends ultimate safety, amazing aerodynamic and aeroacoustic performance within its compact and light flip-up design. This week's episode features senior editor Nick DeSena's impressions of the beautiful new Harley-Davidson Lowrider ST that is loosely based around the original FXRT Sport Glide from the 1980s. Hailing from the Golden State, these cult status performance machines became known as West Coast style, with sportier suspension, increased horsepower, and niceties that included creature comforts such as a tidy fairing and sporty luggage. In past episodes, you might have heard us mention my best friend, Daniel Schoenwald. And in the second segment, I chat with him about some of the really special machines in his 170 or so, and growing, motorcycle collection. He's always said to me that he doesn't consider himself the owner, merely the curator of the motorcycles for the next generation. Yet Daniel is not just a collector, I can attest that he's a really skilled rider. His bikes are not just trailer queens, they're ridden, and they're ridden pretty hard. Actually, we've had many, many memorable rides on pretty much all of the machines in the collection at one time or another. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. The Lowrider ST is is a new model for 2022, and it uses the, we'll say, the sturdy bones of the 2022 Lowrider S as a jumping off point. You know, the ST is one of those bikes that is, I would describe it as a bike that's been a long time coming. Um, if you look at FXR, Dyna, and soft tie, soft tail riders from the West Coast. Often you'll you'll hear the description of a West Coast style, West Coast style bagger, which is usually an FXRT fairing um, that references the FXRT Sport Glide from the '80s, and it'll have some high bags on it. Um, usually upgraded suspension, braking. Um, and things like that. So essentially they're taking a standard cruiser like the Lowrider S or something of that ilk, adding some wind protection, improving the suspension, improving engine performance, and just making it a far more capable cruiser overall. So it's essentially a lightweight bagger. And that's really what the Lowrider ST is about. And, you know, ST, according to Harley Davidson, stands for sport touring. So in a lot of ways, it is an an American take on a classic motorcycling category which you know the sport touring category that's pretty much what the the lowrider st is trying to achieve here uh, excuse my ignorance but is that more what i would call the sort of the club kind of look where you get these uh you know the high bars on them that uh, that i see young guys riding around with in other words much more sort of sporting kind of kind of cruiser yeah yeah exactly and you know there's a you know, these things live on a spectrum. So you can go from the club style look, which is really what the Lowrider S 
um, tries to tries to pinpoint with the, the small little fly screen around the headlights, sure. high rise bars like you mentioned, um, and and things like that. Um, but uh, the the ST model has a fairing that directly references the FXRT Sport Glide, which is what a lot of the club style bikes have been building towards um, in general. Anyway, and you know the FXRT is uh, FXRT Sport Glide and, and all of its iterations throughout the '80s have become sort of this this cult sort of following. You know, it's it's really achieved a, a cult status and for many years harley didn't offer anything quite like it you know you either had to go cruiser or bagger or build your own right and you know that's that's what the st is is going after here so yeah it is in that club style quote unquote um but really it's kind of a you know a west coast thing that has has really become just part of the American V-twin fabric overall. It did originate, you know, from, from California, but more or less it's been adopted globally at this point, um, you know, just as, as people that want a little bit, bit more out of their cruisers. Yeah, I, I see a lot of these guys. I mean, these guys are fast. There's a lot of, I mean, these are very much performance bikes. Um, I mean, they, they live in, in, in the performance world. Um, and it, it's impressive the way a lot of these guys ride, I have to say. Um, so what kind of uh, engine comes in the ST? Yeah, so with all of the ST models for 2022, whether we're talking about the Street Glide ST, the Road Glide ST, the Lowrider ST, or the Lowrider S, it all comes with the Milwaukee 8 117. Uh, so that is the largest displacement production model or standard production model. Uh, you can get a larger crate motor from Harley-Davidson, but in terms of just off the showroom floor in your bike, this is the largest motorcycle or the largest engine at the moment. Um, now with that, you get a whopping, I believe it is a claimed um, 125 foot pounds of torque at 3,500 RPM. And what I really love about the uh, 117 M8 motor is that in this lighter weight cruiser application, this is where it gets to shine. You know, in the heavyweight street and road glides and CVOs where the, the 117 used to reside or it used to reside exclusively in the CVO models, it's pushing a lot more weight. Now in a bike that weighs about 720 pounds, give or take, this thing can really get the motorcycle going. And, you know, with Milwaukee eight engines that have been on the market for a number of years now, counterbalanced very well. You just get a ton of low end and mid range power to just scoot you off the line and get you up to speed uh, quickly. And the way it's balanced is it just keeps everything nice and smooth without becoming, you know, excessively uh, uh, vibratory. We'll say, you know, if you think back to twin cam or, you know, Evo motors, there's really a lot more vibration. Some people may be into that, but, you know, when we're talking about performance and trying to keep everything tight and smooth, um, the Milwaukee takes the cake. So yeah, overall the, the engine itself, I think is a, a, a really 
a really good fit for the lowrider's vibe, just aesthetically with all of the blacked out bits everywhere, but also the performance uh, edge that the lowrider S and the ST are going after. Okay. Um, does it come with any kind of electronics package? Are these things ride by wire? Yeah, yeah, it's it is a ride by wire throttle. Um, however, you know the the lowrider ST is is quite purist. You know, there's no ride modes. There's no TC. The only real, you know, rider aid that it has is good, good fueling and ABS. So that's all you got. And I would say in a, in a cruiser application, you know, I, I, with modern bikes, especially when we just talked about the 2022 Harley Davidson Nightster, which has a full suite of electronics to keep it up with, you know, the latest and greatest from Japan or Europe. This is a much different attitude. This is a, I, I would say the Lowrider ST is a bit more of a purist American V-twin experience in that sense, where it's just a turnkey V-twin engine fired up and go. In that case, you know, does this engine need any ride modes? No, not at all. I, I would say it's tractable enough to where you wouldn't want to change its personality anyway. And the personality that it has is very agreeable, whether at low RPM or high RPM, um, you know, respectively for a V-twin when we're talking about high RPMs. But, you know, overall, it's just something that you can put into six gear at 50 miles an hour and chug along a freeway or 65 miles an hour, and it's going to treat you well. Or you can start whaling on it and really dig into that low and mid-range power when you're in the canyons and uh, have a lot of fun. And... I don't really see the point in kind of getting lost in ride modes and other other things like that. I agree. It's uh, it, I mean the bike clearly has a lot of charisma and and uh, like you say a certain kind of following, so it's going to appeal to certain kind of riders and they don't need all that frou frou stuff on it. Um, it sounds uh, sounds pretty good. Like like they've identified the market yeah. and produced the bike that's going to appeal to those you know those riders. So what's the, uh, what's the chassis and suspension like? So those are kind of the big points for 2022. Um, if we go back to the, the lowriders, uh, the lowrider S in 2016, when that first came out, that was still built on the Dyna platform. And then we fast forward a couple of years to when the lowrider S became part of the Softail family. And now we're fast forwarding another couple of years and it's now received a nice little upgrade and something that the market has been asking for consistently since 2016, which is additional travel in the shock or shocks if we're talking about the Dyna iteration. So both the S and the ST have a longer shock that's gone to a 56 millimeter stroke. And you know, for those that may not kind of understand the intricacies of suspension, we'll say, that amounts to 4.4 inches of travel. So that's a, a respectable amount of suspension travel, whether you're talking about a modern sport bike or, or anything else that's road going. And typically when we're talking about American V-twin motorcycles, shock travel is something that is compromised really to encourage low seat heights and low overall uh, standover height. So 4.4 inches of travel is something that we can all appreciate. That does a handful of things really. Now, one, you've improved the suspension and ride quality leaps and bounds over the original uh, 2016 Lowrider S. 
in comparison to the previous generation Softail Lowrider S, it's a step above that for sure, um, but not a dramatic leap that I would consider over that 16 model. And with the ST specifically, because it's a heavier motorcycle, it has a fairing and fairing bracket attached to the frame up front, as well as the luggage. Overall, if you compare the Lowrider S and the Lowrider ST, you're talking about a 72 pound difference. So quite a bit of weight added to the motorcycle in terms of you know, the fairing and luggage. Instead of using progressive rate springs in the fork, the ST uses static rate. In my opinion, static rate springs are generally much more predictable for me. It uh, doesn't really change the way that the fork will move through the stroke as you're compressing the front ends, maybe on the brakes or just going through a bump. So I'm not a huge fan of progressive rate springs to begin with, but the static rate springs offer a bit more support to compensate for that weight. Now that's the nuts and bolts of it, getting into the ride quality and how it actually works. This thing is sprung and damped, I would say a bit heavier than your average cruiser. Uh, it's definitely leaning towards the, the sporting end of the spectrum for, for a performance-oriented cruiser. Not too stiff, you know, the, the damping, whether you're talking about compression or rebound, it's not overbearing. You're, you're soaking up the bumps really well takes everything on the chin nicely and, you know, under braking. And when you start riding, you know, with a bit more gusto in the canyons, it, it holds up to that as well. It can really stay nice and composed on the brakes. And when you start accelerating nice and hard, and that's something that I would attribute to a couple of things. One, we're altering the geometry because we've now lifted the rear end slightly, uh, does make that seat height a little bit taller. So you're equalizing weight distribution, making the bike um, a little bit more apt on the, the turn-in, its initial turn-in rate, wants to just get into the corner a little bit easier. And then we've also raised the center of gravity marginally, you know, in comparison to other iterations of the Lowrider S um, and the Lowrider platform. Yeah, it's not a huge difference, but it is a perceptible difference in the sense that the 2022 Lowrider S NST are able to handle with just that extra edge over its predecessors. And this thing goes through the corners, you know, it's not to use a cliche in the motorcycling world, but the thing's on rails. You have this huge wheelbase because it's still a cruiser, of course. So you get all the stability from that, just a nice wide wheelbase. And it takes a, a, a good whack to really upset the chassis in any way, which is something that the soft tail and, and its rigidity and its stiffness over the, the Dyna and FXRs is, well, it's just incomparable. The, the stiffness that you get from a, a soft tail chassis is, is far greater than Dyna or FXR um, in stock configurations. So overall, the chassis is something that I really enjoyed. I think the the seating position and all that really complement the, the vibe that you get from this bike as you're cornering, you start riding it more aggressively, soaking up, you know, that, that a little bit above 31 point something, I think it's 31.3 .3 or 31 degrees of lean angle, more or less. But that number is a little deceptive, kind of feels like, like a bit more, but um, you know, this thing is just 
incredibly fun to rip around on the canyons on because you have that torque you get on the gas you know launch off the apex do all that stuff and <laughs> it's just it's kind of the lowrider that that i've always wanted so yeah it's it it's definitely a really fun bike to ride yeah it's um i've noticed also that it has uh twin rotor front discs on it you know front brakes yeah, that's fairly unusual, isn't it? And that, again, tells me that this is a little bit more of a performance oriented bike. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes back to uh, FXRT Sport Glide. Um, you know, various Dynas over the years, FXRs and, you know, obviously baggers in the, the HD family have used dual disc setups. And that really appeals to a rider with a performance mindset. Obviously, you just get more braking power, braking force. And, um, you know, if you think about Sportsters and other, other models that use a single rotor setup, you're just not getting the same, same type of braking performance out of it. So right out of the gate, it has dual discs, 300 millimeter rotors. I can't remember what that equates to in inches because, well... We're an American publication and we reference metric and imperial for some reason. Still don't know why, but anyway, <laughs> that, them's the brakes. But anyway. And also operating on mag wheels as well. So no spoked wheels, which is interesting. Yeah, no spoke wheels. That's been a staple for Lowrider S since it came out. Um, and, you know, especially this, this gold colorway that you'll see in the photos. When that came out with the Lowrider S, it was really digging into that club style. So you had this black on gold sort of sort of vibe going on with the old Drop H Harley logo that dates back to you know the early 20th century, and it's just got a lot of really old school aesthetics built into it that I genuinely appreciate. But yeah, the braking power more than ample. You know, with the ST, the only sort of like criticism I would say, and I'm not even sure if it's criticism, more of just an observation, but when you look at the fully built uh, FXR builds or Dyna builds or even Softail builds coming out of, you know, the performance bagger or performance cruiser scene, you'll see a lot of riders that might be doing full front end swaps to upside down forks, which is what the Lowrider S and SD are referencing, but they'll also have, um, different bottom ends on those forks that accommodate radial radial mounting systems. So what we're running here on the ST is an axial mount. And I do think there's room for improvement, not out, it, it, it will offer better braking performance, but um, you know, for the price point, for the aesthetics that the ST is chasing and the S uh, is chasing, I would say that radial brakes would be something that everyone would appreciate. There's no downside to it except price, because um, that invariably will raise the, the MSRP. But yeah, yeah, that's about the only thing I can really say about the brakes that's on the negative side. You know, they stop this thing more than adequately. You can haul this beast to a, a pretty, pretty rapid stop if you need to. And then of course you have in the rear, you have a, single caliper setup, four piston caliper with a 300 millimeter rotor. Works nicely for correcting lines, low speed maneuvers, all that good stuff. And, you know, because that super long wheelbase, when you use the brakes in conjunction, you are going to stop 
in a hurry. Awesome. The ergonomics and wind protection, that's obviously a huge thing for the, the Lowrider ST. I mean, the star of the show, no matter how you want to shake and bake it with this bike, is the fact that it has this FXRT-inspired fairing. And, you know, that's sort of the, the tagline for this motorcycle. You look at it and you go, oh, okay, yeah. It's definitely a, a tasteful homage to the FXRT Sport Glide, but it's not as kind of 80s looking and bulbous. And, you know, as much as I like the FXRT look, until this came out, I, I didn't really know that it could be improved upon. And this is, this is something that Harley designers spent a lot of time on. So not only does Harley really care about referencing their past in a very tasteful way and bringing that stuff to the future, which I think they've done quite well with the ST. It references the original FXRT Spork Glide, um, but it brings it into the future. It gives it a much more chiseled look, which I think has a much more modern take on the entire uh, uh, project. And then it also introduces just better aerodynamic qualities. So the bike overall, in talking to engineers when we first picked this up, you know, they said that the, the optimal height for someone of the Lowrider ST is probably around 5'10 to 5'11. Um, so, you know, slightly above average for the American male. Okay. And that's, that's what they're, they're gunning for in terms of, uh, you know, maximum height and, and things like that. And they used computational fluid dynamics, which a lot of our listeners and readers will be familiar with, you know, with modern car design and fairing design on sport bikes. And now Harley Davidson is using it here to really understand the aerodynamics and the functions of airflow. So they're not creating, uh, you know, low pressure areas in the, the cockpit, which invariably lead to uh, uh, buffeting and things like that. I stand at five foot 10 inches. And if you look at photos, my helmet kind of lines up with that, that six inch dark smoke windscreen. And, um, you know, in terms of where the air would actually flow. And for me, I think this fairing is spot on. Nice. It's not too big and bulky, like how you can often feel about touring motorcycles. You know, that's just a lot of mass up in front of you. And it's just the right amount of wind protection to where I can suddenly take a cruiser on much longer trips, if not long trips by any definition. And I have all the wind protection I need. Now, again, going back to the computational fluid dynamics things, so designing wise, yeah, they definitely wanted to harness the aesthetics of, of the FXRT Sport Glide. But the reason it's sharper and it has these little winglets on the side that uh, designers affectionately referred to as willy wings, that is not the official term, <laughs> but it should be. They're essentially just air deflectors to further redirect air away from the, the rider and just in your knee area, which, can definitely happen on on cruisers you know you'll you'll get this sort of like buffeting on your your knees kind of tries to to spread your legs a bit at high speeds a bit annoying but this doesn't happen there and you know the wind protection is quite good you have three vents now if you think back to the original fxrt spark glide only had two vents that flanked the round headlight now there's a third vent um 
that goes right up the center. And that sort of leads us into a talk about the instrumentation as well. But um, we'll get to that in just a second. Um, you know, seating position wise, in combination with the good wind protection, you have a solo seat, again, done up in that West Coast style, you know, brands like Saddleman and Mustang really brought that to the table. And so it has a nice scalloped um, design to it. It's nice and plush. And it also has a good back stop to it. So a butt stop when you're accelerating to hold you in place. Then you got the mid controls as well. And this is one of the things that in talking with, you know, taller riders, leggier riders, this is something that you're going to have to be careful about if you're a taller individual on a, a bike with mid controls. So, you know, uh, a low seat height motorcycle, mid controls, that's going to kind of bring your knees a little bit higher than normal, right? Because your, your legs are now moving closer to you or your feet are move, moving closer to you. That wouldn't happen with forward controls, which tend to splay your legs out a bit. But mid controls offer, um, I would argue, a much more comfortable seating position because it takes weight off your tailbone and it offers a little bit more ground clearance. Sure. So there are advantages, but the taller you get, the worse this sort of um, sensation that I'll describe as trying to sit at the kid's table, if that makes sense. <laughs> right. Okay. So um, for me, I actually really like this seating position. I have a 32 inch inseam. It works for me all day. However, if you are taller, that might be something you want to think about. And then you want to try to extend that distance between the foot pegs and the seat. So how do you do that? Well, that's why all those aftermarket producers and even Harley Davidson's themselves offer taller seats. So you just keep adding height to reduce knee bend. I mean, that's part and parcel for the West Coast style uh, cruisers and baggers is these sort of chunky tall seats. And um, well, that's the reason because you're just trying to buy some height. Sure. So yeah, seating position wise, I'm, I'm all good there. And then you have those riser handlebars. They kick your arms up just at a nice height. They're nice and wide as well, which on a cruiser application with no wind protection turns your body into a sail. <laughs> and at 80 miles an hour, that can just sort of become frustrating. Right. But since you have this awesome little fairing, you're good to go. And you, you pretty much don't feel any wind blast at all. It's, it's, it's great. Now, if you're a taller rider, you might want to opt for a taller windscreen. They do offer those. You know, Harley's P&A catalog is unmatched, I would say, in terms of their offerings. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, you know, if you're 5'10", 5'11", or shorter than that, I'd say you're going to be pretty good. If you're into that six-foot range, you know, whatever, we all hate you for being tall and attractive anyway. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's that's your curse deal with it <laughs> we all have our cross to bear yeah, um, so you were you were about to say something about the instrumentation is that is that good bad or indifferent could be all three honestly um <laughs> okay yeah the if you look at the lowrider s it comes with this single analog clock that has a little lcd screen on it for you know uh, fuel and gear indication and uh that is a really cool little little addition to the Lowrider S. Definitely fits the bot, the vibe of what guys or gals would be building 
uh, for bikes of this ilk and original sort of, um, you know, baggers that have the, the two up Mickey Mouse ear speedo and tack on each side, even though this is a single, it kind of, you know, gets into that, that look and feeling. Now the Lowrider ST borrows its instrumentation from the Street Bob and uh, Fat Bob, which if we remember correctly, is a, a handlebar clamp mounted little LCD screen. And it shows you just the basics. You get a fuel gauge, gear indicator, and then all you have your warning lights uh, right below it. Um, so it's pretty basic, pretty utilitarian. LCD screens are a little bit hard to read in direct sunlight, especially if you wear a dark shield, which I definitely recommend for anyone riding during the day. And so, you know, that's definitely a thing, but there's a reason it's there. So the reason the ST can't use the S's model, according to uh, designers, is for aerodynamic reasons. You might think, well, the dash sits behind the fairing. How would that affect aerodynamics? So that third little air vent that's in the fairing funnels air directly into the rider to reduce low pressure systems and create a stable pocket of air for the rider. Now, if they plant that instrumentation on top of the, the handlebar clamp, like the Lowrider S, suddenly it upsets that stable pocket of air and you run into some turbulence issues. So that was the reasoning as to why the Lowrider S and ST differ in terms of their instrumentation according to Harley-Davidson staff. In playing around with the FXRT fairing, if I did plug that vent up, I kind of felt like I did feel a bit more buffeting than normal. And having that bit of airflow through the fairing instead of totally blocking it out, I think is a positive thing. So obviously I'm not a scientist or a person that even understands computational fluid dynamics. But in my primitive testing by shoving a sweatshirt in the hole of the fairing, I feel like it kind of worked. You know. <laughs> all right. So, um, what uh, what kind of colorways does this come with? I see that uh, all the pictures are in the uh, sort of battleship gray. You know, um, that's so popular nowadays. Yeah. Is it coming in anything else as well? Or? Uh, you have your you you have two colorways with the Lowrider S and ST models. You know, again, not to be confusing, but I keep referencing the Lowrider S because the ST is a derivative of the S. And, okay. you know, it comes in a black with all of your gold trim. And then uh, this, uh, I believe it's called gunship gray. And that is an additional cost, if I remember correctly, something like $450 on top of the MSRP. Fit and finish wise, this is pretty typical for, for Harley-Davidson. I mean, the paint finishes, whether you like the gray or not, or prefer the black, whatever, the paint is extremely high quality. The badging is just top notch. Everywhere you look, it's just totally sorted and you know this is something that we've come to expect harley davidson of that i think they're one of the leaders in terms of fit and finish right. now there are a couple hiccups though and and a little bit surprising as well you know with the fxrt fairing i don't know why i keep calling it that it's actually the st fairing with the st fairing the frame mounted uh bracket and the way the fairing bolts on, you can actually see the threaded ends of the mounting bolts coming towards you. And it seems like a really 
minor complaints, but you know, if you're buying a motorcycle that's into the 20 grand range and it has the fit and finish qualities across the saddlebags and everything else that you see, then you see these threaded bits coming at you. It's just kind of like, well, you couldn't just fit some rubber end caps on there or something like, come on. Right. Especially when the interior of that fairing is finished extremely well. And that's the thing that you never really got with a lot of the aftermarket fairings is it was typically just a fiberglass fairing and then whatever happens on the interior, sometimes it was finished nicely or it just was smooth. And sometimes you could see the interior of fiberglass weaving. Really just depends on who is manufacturing it. Um, so when you have this juxtaposition of an extremely well-designed, competent, uh, quite Spartan fairing interior, which fits the whole, you know, pack light uh, performance bagger or performance cruiser vibe and mentality, then you have those threaded bits, kind of weird. Another little kind of minor complaint is just some of the, the, the exhaust brackets and hangers are, they're, they're not painted. So you see them as just their, their stainless steel finish or, or steel finish. And, um, you know, it, it kind of stands out against everything else that's painted and finished immaculately. And then you have some, well, there's no other way to put it, a couple bits of cheap hardware just holding the exhaust on. Now, the caveat here is, I think Harley recognizes that no one is probably going to keep the shotgun exhaust. So why put money into it? And I, I really see this buyer as someone that is going to add a performance exhaust system uh, to their motorcycle, whether it's slip-ons or a full system. And, and maybe that's why, but at the same time, some people may not have that option uh, depending on what state they live on or what country they live in. Yeah, good point. The only final thing we, we really should be touching on is uh, the bags. Okay, what what were your thoughts on the bags? They look fairly small, but but I imagine they probably hold some stuff that you need. You're not going to be touring across the country with those bags, but definitely pretty useful, I'd say. You're going to have to pack lighter on the ST. Sure. And again, that like we just mentioned before, this is not about the riding to Sturgis from California or New York sort of deal and packing the entire kitchen sink. It's about doing you know the daily grind day trips weekend trips longer trips i i for myself i tend to pack extremely light to the point where i'm angrily <laughs> wishing i'd brought more things or prepared much better that said you have nearly two cubic feet of storage and the clamshell saddlebags open up from the side so you can't fit a full face helmet in there by any means you could probably fit one of those cheesy little skull cap thing helmets which i strongly encourage no one ever uses for their own safety but the bags themselves are awesome i loved these bags when they were on the on the short-lived soft tail sport glide honestly thought that they were the best feature of that motorcycle personally but they're super easy to remove and install they just have a single locking quick release mechanism that you can pull the bags off in actual seconds i mean once you know how to do it you can pull them on and off take them into your hotel room or in the house or whatever if you're parking outside and you get it done instantly it's awesome i would say yeah you can fit more than enough layers clothing change of shoes all that good stuff in there and hit heavy trips as long as you pack light and smart yeah it's not a full dresser no you can't like take everything that you need for a cookout, but 
if you do go to a barbecue, there's no excuse for not bringing stuff because obviously you can fit something in there. And come on, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, they seem they seem ideal, and they're you know they're not so big and unwieldy that they look ugly or you know going to affect the aerodynamics, and they look you know small and trim and and actually really good. Yeah, and that's the whole point. It's it goes in with the 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 purpose of a performance cruiser. You know, they're lifted up when compared to the the uh, sport glide, so they have that high stance to give the performance uh, aesthetic that we've mentioned a bunch of times. But beyond that, uh, the only observations is that they are staggered on the pipe side because um, they have to clear the exhaust. And when you look at a lot of sport touring motorcycles or adventure motorcycles, for that matter or touring bikes for that matter, typically the pipe side will have a staggered case or at least a case that has a slightly different design to accommodate the exhaust. And that can vary from the extreme to the you know, very minor in terms of their changes from the left to the right side. But yeah, that's, that's something that's pretty par for the course. I know this thing took a bit of flack when it was first released because people noticed that the bags were slightly uneven is in one of the bags is just slightly taller than the other and the staggered pipes, but it's not a big deal to me personally, unless you're standing directly behind it. And that's like a, a deal breaker for you, which it shouldn't be because this thing's awesome. So, you know, whatever. Overall, it's brought everything to the table that I think a lot of riders were building to begin with. I mean, in a sense, you know, is it a sport touring motorcycle? Yeah, absolutely. It's an American twist on the sport touring genre for sure and something that we haven't seen from harley davidson in quite some time i mean we could include the sport glide but in my opinion it just wasn't it wasn't a step far enough in that direction you know it just didn't have the geometry changes that people wanted um the aesthetics really were kind of the biggest portion um on my personal take and, and really honing in on this FXRT Spork Glide heritage and bringing that forward and then creating something new and arguably better in the ST, that's a, that's a huge thing. But if you think about what people were asking for a performance cruiser and lightweight bagger, they weren't asking for much. They were just asking for wind protection, more engine performance, better suspension and handling. And we got it in the Lowrider ST. Yeah, there are you know, a handful of complaints here and there couple little uh, execution uh, miscues in terms of the styling and the seating position, depending on how big or tall you are, could be an issue. Other than that, I don't see any, any huge downsides to this motorcycle. And, um, you know, these things are selling incredibly well right now. I mean, it's definitely the, the hot button motorcycle at, at the moment. But um, yeah, you know, that, that's what we got for the Lowrider ST. And yeah, it's something that uh, I definitely am missing in the garage right now because it was my my preferred scoot oh. to go to the gym on and you know run my daily errands and things like that. And then, you know, I knew that I had a bike on the weekends that I could go and rip around in the canyons and sell some fun. So kind of did everything that I wanted to do. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Okay, well, thanks for your insight. Appreciate it, as always. Sounds like the, uh, the ST should be on a lot of people's shopping list. Yeah, yeah, well, it definitely is because, yeah, saying thing is going to be popular okay all right thanks all right cool 2022 is the 100th anniversary of shoe birth helmets head protection technology made in germany 
The DOT version of the new C5 launches this June and it offers a revised fit with customizable inner pads for comfort. Increased ventilation with a new chin air intake and rear exhaust spoiler and increased safety with new EPS material and anti-roll-off system. It also has a locking mechanism to hold the chin bar open and it's pre-wired for the new SC2 communication system offering mesh by Senna. Learn more about the all-new features at shoebirth.com. The new Shoebirth C5, endless evolution. There's a place where the track meets the street, where the next generation of rider meets a new generation of super sport machine. It's called Our World, and the all-new Yamaha YZF-R7 is your gateway. Discover how the YZF-R7 provides the perfect balance of rider comfort and true super sport performance. Take a closer look at yamahamotorsports.com or see the YZF-R7 for yourself at your local dealer and see where our world meets yours. In past episodes, you might have heard us mention my best friend, Daniel Schoenwald, and in this second segment, I chat with him about some of the really special machines in his 170 or so motorcycle collection. He's always said to me that he doesn't consider himself the owner, merely the curator of the motorcycles for the next generation. Yet Daniel is not just a collector, I can attest that he's a really skilled rider. His bikes are not just trailer queens, they're ridden, and they're ridden pretty hard. Actually, we've had many, many memorable rides on pretty much all of the machines in the collection at one time or another. So you were telling me about what started collecting. I mean, how did you start all of this? Hmm. Well, it goes back to when I met Felicia, I had more than one motorcycle and then... Uh, like how many? Like Two. Okay, two. More than one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, and that wasn't a collection, but uh, two very different bikes, a GS1100 and uh, an H2. The GS1100E that we've still got? Yeah. The 80, it was an 82 model. Okay. And uh, my friend who I met on Facebook many, many, many years later after looking for him forever, um, he was the Suzuki dealership in uh, Denton, Texas. And uh, he goes, you gotta get this bike, you gotta get this bike. And that was in the, you know, the days of that square headlight GS. Right. And I, I kept saying no, kept saying no. Because you didn't like the square headlight. Well, it was a big ass bike and it was a four stroke, <laughs> not a two stroke. Okay. You know, H2 with the Tracy body and Tomaselli clip-ons and were just pipes and stuff. And so I, I got it. It was comfortable and what have you. But uh, so I had two. The I had two bikes for a long time, and then I was down to one. And then we came to the states, and as the company was getting more established, I bought a couple of bikes. <laughs> One of them was uh, uh, Norton Commando, which I always wanted, that okay. I never got as a kid. And so I got that bike, and then another, and then another. And I had about 10 or 12 bikes, 
And I thought, when is this going to stop? <laughs> what, what, what's going on? And and so I just uh, just ran, you know. And just uh, kept going. Like just the bridle, no saddle, just the bridle. I was like a horse. <laughs> I was gone, and I never no stopping me. And then right every once in a while, I think like number sixteen or you know, and then in the thirties, I thought, wow. No, I'm not a collector. <laughs> Guy Webster's a collector. I'm, right. I'm a writer. Right. And I just kept getting bikes um, that I dreamed about as a kid, or there were new bikes, and it was a, a real dream in real time. Mm -hmm. And then in 93, uh, they made that number one replica of the Tug Poland 888. And so that's the bike that started this whole collection. Uh, um, oh, they're okay. older bikes that I have, but that 93, in deference to my young high school friend when I was in college, Doug Poland, I, I bought that bike. I still didn't feel like a collector because there was people like <laughs> Otis Chandler and Jay Leno and Guy Webster. They were the collectors. Right, right. I just started getting bikes. Started acquiring bikes. For me and my friends. You included, Arthur. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I, I didn't know you at that point. It was, and so really when you sort of formalized it, it was probably with your friend Carl Lehman, wasn't it? What was the, what was the situation with Carl? Because I only knew him briefly before he passed away. Carl, um, wow, what, what a, what a story he he lived. It, really? it was a, a true story based on fact. And what a great guy he was. And um, two of my friends, one a motorcycle friend and another just a friend, and they both asked Carl if they knew me. And he goes, oh, no, I don't know. I don't know him. And they said, oh, well, you, ha you, have a, you, ha you have a lot in common. You need to meet this guy. So he calls me up on the phone out of the blue and he goes, we don't know each other. I know who you are and we have two mutual friends. And I, I wanted to ask you, should I get this Envy Augusta F4? And I said, well, I have one. In fact, I have the very first one, you know, VIN 0001. <laughs> and uh, I said, it's a nice bike. So he got one, a two-seater be postal and uh, and we, we became friends and oh, nice. uh, actually he was born March 11th and I'm March 12th oh, so we okay. had that whatever Pisces have in common we had that in common <laughs> right but he had this foundation and uh, it was called uh, the Carl Lehman motorcycle safety foundation and he um, started this for because it was a legal tax loophole, <laughs> right? Um, and and so uh, before he died, a couple three or so years before he died, he asked me to be uh, part of this foundation, right? And it was him and one of his work colleagues and myself were in, in that uh, that foundation. 
And I asked Carl, I said, well, what should I do if something bad happened to you? <laughs> and he could smile with his eyes, and I was like, Daniel, don't worry, nothing's going to happen to me. <laughs> right. uh, for sure, I, I thought I would be the first to go, but he he passed away, and it was a shame. When was that? That must have been about... 04. 04, okay. And 2004, yeah. So he had 19 bikes. Right. And I didn't know what to do with them. And some quite nice ones, didn't he? I mean, you know, there was a, there's a Ducati Ben Bostrom 155 and a Troy Bayliss and... Yeah. The, uh, the 155 um, w was the last one. So he got number 155 out of 155. Right, right. And, you know, Ben Bostrom was racing D Ducati at the time, and he goes, Daniel, if, if at all possible, if I have any pull with the factory, I'll get you the number one. Yeah, because you like the number one. And I, I never uh, I never got one. Uh, and uh, it was close enough for my friend to have one. I, I didn't think I needed to get one. And... Uh, and then so I inherited it with the other 18 bikes that he had right. when he passed away. Right. And I, I didn't know what to do with those bikes. They were at, at his, uh, he had a little warehouse close to where he lived and they were stored there. But I, I eventually moved them here and dissolved that uh, agreement with, the, with his landlord up there where he stored his bikes, and they've been in here. Uh, right, and just added them to your collection. Yeah, <coughs> you've ridden most of them also I have. through the years. I have, a and I am part of the foundation. I am the third, yes. one of absolutely. the directors of the foundation, yeah, which is yes. an absolute privilege. But, um, so how many bikes, how many bikes are we up to now? I mean, you know, we uh, kind of never, never have an exact count. At well, one I time, I, I took a picture of all the bikes, <laughs> and I never really counted them, but I counted the pictures. <laughs> and so I think there was like 112 bikes or 118 bikes, I can't remember, but... Uh, yeah, but since then, you've added some. Well, until recently, I said, when whenever somebody asked me how many bikes I have, I said, well, I have... 126. <laughs> I, I have no idea uh, if that was true or not, but it was pretty close. And then uh, a friend from Australia came to visit a couple of months ago, and he asked me the same question. And he asked me a bunch of other questions. He went around and collected the, you know, counted the bikes. And he goes, oh, Daniel, you have 173 bikes. Oh, there's 173? <laughs> And uh, <laughs> but he counted some. I'm I'm I've got some bikes that I'm storing uh, for Thad Wolf, okay. and, and he he counted those bikes. I think there's like six, six or seven six of or those seven, bikes. Yeah. yeah. So I really don't know how many bikes I okay, have. Okay, so you're probably about 160, I would think. I don't know for sure, but <laughs> we can go count them someday. <laughs> go count them. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> the thing that that. You came up with this concept of a collection within a collection. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sort of the, the poker hand. So how, how did that come about? Well, so I, I do like riding these, the old um, 70s Triumphs. And 
so I have uh, the Trident, the Tiger, the single carburetor. Okay. And then, and then the Hurricane X seventy five. Right. And I thought that's really nice. And I thought, well, I, I really need the Bonneville because that <laughs> would be the start of a collection within a collection, and those would be like just a handful of bikes. And so, if I got the um, the Bonneville, which is just like the Tiger, but two carburetors, uh, I thought, well, that'll finish off that collection, and it'll be a collection within a collection. And I, I still don't have that, but um, I've got a nine, uh, 73 Rickman Matisse with that Bonneville motor in it. Okay. And so... Um, so it's a bit of a cheat, but it's close. Yeah, <laughs> nickel-plated frames and stuff like that. That how cool can you be riding one of those? But then when when I when I got that, I thought you know, now I can really start a collection within a collection. And so uh, I had these Nortons, and then I grabbed a hold of a uh, Dunstall Norton, okay. and, and I thought, well, this is what the factory thought that the, a Norton Commando should look like. And this is what Paul Dunstall thought a motorcycle should look like. And so that was kind of a, a collection within a collection of two different interpretations of right. of the original manufacturer and then and the somebody else. Guy. Okay. And so uh, so I thought, wow, this is this is a really nice concept. You know, I'd collect, uh, I'd collect ants if they had a mechanical noise, but <laughs> right. there was a great concept that a collection within a collection. So I, I had all these Bomotas, and I thought, oh, let me find the, the factory bikes right. from, let's say, Suzuki or Yamaha or Ducati. Right. And so uh, that that's the true, I think, definition for me, a collection within a collection. You have all these bikes. And then uh, you have the standard bike from the factory, and then you have this uh, somebody else's interpretation of the bike. Okay. And I go back and forth. Sometimes I think the original standard bike is the cool thing, and then I think, no, um, <laughs> so and so, yeah, I like their idea. So I go back and forth. It, right. It, it's kind of cool. Right. I think. I think the first collection within a collection that I saw you get was were the was the Kawasaki H2 because you had two or three of them and the next thing I know is that you're starting to you're buying more of them and I'm thinking why is he he's already got a couple of these why is he buying some more yeah so people called that bike the Widowmaker. Right. And actually sure. it wasn't the H two that was was given that name, it was the the H one, the five hundred C triple. But um so for the purists out there they we know the H one is the Widowmaker, not the H two. Having right. said that, I I'm proud to say that, um on the seven fifty the H two I, I say that I have uh in H2 in every color in every year yeah. of the Widowmaker. <sighs> and, and the people who rode 
the Widowmaker, well, th they were called organ donors. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But then again, uh, so I do have all the H2s, and then I have a very special H2 that my friend Alan Milliard from the UK uh, put together right. for me. And that uh, looks alarmingly like uh, a bike that came from the factory, but it has a fourth cylinder and it's a thousand cc. Right. And uh, that was the first one that he actually did, as far as I know. Yeah. It, I think. I, I met him at the Isle of Man and he had uh, an 888 cc H1. And, and that one had five cylinders. And I asked him if he would make a, a H2 five-cylinder. And he goes, yeah, I've never made one, but sure, I'll make you one. And I, I got to thinking about it, and I thought that was too outrageous. <laughs> and I said, but can you make a four? He goes, well, I've never done that. Sure, I'll make you a four. And I thought, wow, one of my boyhood dreams when I was in college was to get a factory leader two-stroke <laughs> and of course th they, they never came out with one and they didn't really have to because of the TZ 750 Yamaha would spank anything and then of course the gas guzzlers and that that all died emissions, thing, yeah, emissions for sure right. and it, it died you know or it, it killed the two-strokes and so even even if the factory thought that they would like to make a leader two-stroke. They never did. Right. But I got the opportunity in 1997, and I gave Alan the idea of a four-cylinder, and that was the first one that he did. Nice, nice. He's done a lot since. Wow. Yeah. It, yeah. You'd you'd go crazy and get dizzy, you yeah. know, just looking at all the projects yeah. that he's done th since then. It is. <coughs> so how many how many Nortons? I mean, Norton is probably your your favorite brand, I would say. Yeah, my favorite uh, bike is a is a, yeah. a Commando. Yeah, the silver, the red and silver one. Yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah, that bike does everything very well, doesn't it? For its year, I mean. Well, it, it's seven forty five cc. It's parallel twin. It's got hemispherical heads. That's what a bike should look like. It's what it should sound like, and that's what a bike should ride like. Yeah, yeah. I have to say, I've ridden it frequently, and and I like it. I like it a lot. I never thought I'd say that about. I mean, growing up in the seventies, to me, British bikes were a joke. They were unreliable, leaky, horrible, just awful things. Um, you know, it was the dawn of the Japanese era, and everything was much more reliable. And so, we were all about, you know, KZ nine hundreds and you know, water buffalo 750s and all that kind of stuff. But as I've got older, and especially since I've known you and I've got to ride these older British bikes, I've got to really appreciate them. And surprisingly, they're actually very reliable. I think they just need to be sort of looked after and nurtured a bit, but actually they don't leak and they don't, they are reliable. We've had a lot of fun on them. The Arthur, I remember when... when uh, I, love, I love the way they handle. I mean, yeah. the handling of those Nortons. You know, the old adage of it's more fun to ride a slow bike fast, and, and we've had some serious fun in the twisties on those things. They, yes. They turn really precisely and handle very well. I think the first 
bike that you rode that uh, that you were on one of my bikes uh, that f you said that you'd never ridden uh, uh, an English bike before no and you got on my my triumph uh, single carbureted bike and and I thought this is crazy <laughs> here's Arthur with the English accent and has <laughs> right. never ridden a, an <laughs> English motorcycle no but just as crazy I thought the first time I heard the phrase a Japanese classic I thought oh my goodness gracious <laughs> what what does that mean right. I could see an English bike like a Norton matchless all those you know Scots and aerials and all that those are classics but a Japanese classic no <laughs> and now silly me I think that's crazy you know there's there's the wonderful world of Japanese classics yeah well you're now up to four GT 750s aren't you four you've got four of them yeah you've got yes. a couple of 76s and you just recently acquired a couple of s the original 72s yes yeah. Jackal Green and Candy Lavender yeah candy jackal green and candy yeah. lavender those are, those are beautiful and i i had a, a candy lavender uh gt 750 in in 72. i wrote it out the showroom floor yeah my uh bell bottom jeans and my uh platform shoes and all <laughs> <laughs> yeah the suzuki the suzuki part of the collection is starting to get really nice i mean uh got an, an original Katana GS1000S the blue and white what we used to call the ice cream machine hmm. we uh, called it the West Cooley replica but the that West Cooley replica yeah yeah West Cooley that was awesome in England I think we saw or you guys in England uh, saw quite a few of the red ones the red with yeah, we the did. bit of we white. had the red and white as well yeah I, I don't think that I never that saw ne one in America never made it to America yeah, those were absolutely just awesome. The thing I remember about the, the, the transatlantic trophy races, and one year we were at Brands Hatch, and I completely forget what happened, but somehow Wes Cooley on the ice cream machine, the blue and white one, got a horrible start, and the pack disappeared over the, over the hill, and he then spent a couple of laps, you know, half a lap behind sort of chasing them by the time he got his bike started and chasing them, couldn't make it. So he spent a couple of laps trying to catch him and then he just gave up and decided he was just going to do wheelies down the straight. So he would just come around the corner, <laughs> do you remember that? Just do wheelies down the straight. And all of us, all we remember was just Wes Cooley pulling wheelies down the straight on the GS 1000S. Nobody remember who, who won the race, nobody cares, it was just about Wes Cooley doing the wheelies. It was boy, tremendous. that guy was talented, huh? He was talented, and yeah. you know, of course, the that concept that uh, Suzuki had, the TSCC. Oh, the Twin Swirl Combustion Chamber. Yeah. Oh, you know that? Yeah, you know, an acronym. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But anyway, yeah. So you've got some got some interesting Suzukis um, in there, but uh, that could do with definitely a little bit of filling out. Got a nice slab side Jixxer 750 when the 19 is that an 85 or an 86 probably an 86 it's 86 because in england everybody got a bike you got uh, the 85s yeah the blue and white a year the before year. we did yeah okay so that was the first year in the yeah. states yeah the black and the red yeah the classic slabby nice 
Well, a long time ago, when I got the GT750 in 72, I said, I'm, I'm never going to buy a first-year bike again. Because in 73, um, it, uh, that that bike, the, the GT, came out with uh, disc brakes. And, right. and I thought, oh, I don't know why people are, you know, they, they don't want the GT anymore. They, they wanted just the brakes off of it. <laughs> right. And I thought they were miserable brakes, really, to be honest with you. But, um, yeah, so the slab side, we, we, in America we call them the 86, uh, the first year. Right. And and so uh, I forgot uh, my youthful wisdom about not getting a first year bike. <laughs> but whether it's a car or a motorcycle, I think the first year it is the more collectible one, the more sought after okay. bike. Yeah. So yeah, perhaps. They may have um, gotten refined through the years, and yeah. absolutely the the GT750 was out there quite many years. What till '77 or something? Yeah, '77, the B, the mean B model. Yeah. It's uh, funny that uh, the first year they called the GS. It, yeah, the first year the GT was called uh, the J, right. and then, like you said, I think over here it was called a Le Mans, wasn't it? The uh, Le Mans. Yeah. We didn't use that never, expression. Never that. It, it was the water buffalo. Okay, the water buffalo, yeah. That's what everybody called it. But it was the Le Mans. Right. And the J model. Yeah, nice. Well, you've also broken your first year rule with really what's probably the next collection in the within the collection is the KZs, the KZ Kawasaki's. In England, they were just the Zs. We just called them, or Zs in England. But, but over here, they're KZs. So you've got the first Z1, haven't you? The 73. Yeah, I, I was... Uh, and you're now, you've now got several of those. So I can see that definitely starting to... What are you missing in that? Missing a couple of 74s, aren't you? And a couple of 75s. Okay. So... But once you've... If you can get those four, you're then up to the full set of those. That would be awesome. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. But man, <laughs> looking at the pricing at Meekums and other places, mm. the, these spikes are going for crazy money. Yeah. So I don't know if I can actually ever fulfill my dream about getting all the Z's in all the years and all the colors. But um, you know, bikes are like drugs; they're everywhere, <laughs> and it's easy to say no to drugs, but the motorcycle. Impossible to say. <laughs> but it'll, it'll, it'll be fun chasing down those four bikes. Well, you've got even post the KZs, you've got some you've got some nice bikes. I mean, you don't have a Z thousand, but you've got the Z one R Turbo. Yes. And what was the what was the story behind that? Well, everybody liked that rounded uh, bodywork on the seventy three through the seventy six, and right. then in seventy. Eight, they came out with that sharp radical. angles, yeah. and it looked like a coffin tank. Some people called it the the bread box or something. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it didn't sell very well. And the marketing manager for Kawasaki at the time said, "Let's grab a hundred of these bikes. Let's put a <laughs> turbocharger on it, and let's sell it for five thousand dollars." But no warranty. 
<laughs> so they they made a hundred of those bikes. So that that gray blue color. Right. And then the following year in 1980, they still had all these other bikes from 78 that weren't sold. And they they grabbed 500 of those bikes. Right. And sprayed them black with three colors of different orange tape for pinstriping and that's called the Black Molly bike. So ah. that Z1R TC for turbocharger that there was uh, actually 600 altogether. Right. 500 of the blacks and uh, 100 of the, the blue ice, silver. Ice blue, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've ridden that bike. It it's it's uh, the the upside of it is, is it has modern spike, sport bike performance. That thing when you when that turbo comes in, man, that is a kick in the pants. It absolutely takes off. Um, the downside of it is you've got about four or five decent turbo runs in it before you run out of gas. <laughs> so well, it, it does it does drink the gas. So. But you know, at the gas pump, you're sitting there filling the tank up, and then your blood pressure goes back to normal. And you, <laughs> right. Now you, but now you get you have to get the courage up to go uh, ride it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think if you're talking about outside of these sort of collections within a collection, really you've got a few kind of what I would call jewels in the crown. Here that really you've got some really special bikes. Um, so I mean, in no particular order, you've got things like uh, you've got a couple of bikes from Von Dutch, haven't you? How did those? How did that come about? I mean, Von Dutch, the pinstriping guru of the '60s. Well, that guy w was such a hardworking fellow, and he did so much artwork besides working on the vehicles, uh, which was actually, he, he made it a, an art form in itself. But the two bikes I have were actually owned by Dutch. So there's right. probably 5,000 people out there that says, oh, you know, Dutch did my paint job or Dutch did this. But I, I can say that I have his two personal bikes. Yeah, that's spectacular. One is a 1934 Rudge Speedway bike with a JAP motor in it. Right. And that was his toy and then his transportation was the, the Condor. Right. And he, and that Condor is a sort of, it's like the sort of the Swiss Army knife, isn't it? It's a 500cc horizontally opposed, like sort of like a BMW or a Ural or one of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Sort of twin. Um, but he's pinstriped the, the thing and it's absolutely spectacular. It's unbelievable what he did with those pinstripes. I, I saw some pictures of the spike before he, he touched it and uh, it, it was a war bike and uh, very practical um, and, and it, it was also uh, camouflage paint originally oh, from the factory. Okay. All right. So, how did you end up getting hold of that? Was that just something that you, was it like a barn find or a, a friend or? A uh, 
well, I have so many friends, and they're always <laughs> looking out for me. And a lot of times I just get in trouble sitting here minding my own business, listening to friends. <laughs> but uh, a friend of mine, Jim Fueling, oh, okay. um, called me up and said, I, I know you'd like to have this motorcycle, and I'd like for you to buy it. <laughs> and and so I did. I, I, bought, I bought the Condor off the... Of off of Dutch, sorry, oh, off of Jim uh, Dutch's Condor, I bought it off of Jim Fueling. Nice. And then uh, around the same time he had an auction and uh, the Speedway Rudge with the JAP powered motor uh, was on, on auction and I, I bought that at the same time. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, I also bought, uh, at that same auction that Jim had, um, I bought a 1965 uh, Atlas, Norton Atlas. Okay. And that was basically the predecessor of the, um, of the Norton Commando. Right. And the cool thing about this bike, it has one and a half miles on it. And right, straight that, out of the factory. That's one of two bikes that uh, I haven't ridden, and my friends haven't ridden yep. either. So it's the Atlas and and also uh, the Speedway bike we were just talking about. Right. Um, I right. haven't ridden that bike. Yeah. Yeah. No brakes, no gears. Uh, <laughs> runs on alcohol. Right. Big 500 cc single cylinder. Yeah. I one day, one day, <laughs> I'll fire it up. We'll fire it up and see if it will. But not today. <laughs> yeah. But you know, so you were asking me about a collection within a collection a minute ago, and it re I just re I just realized that one of the collections within the collection is all the bins that end in 001. Right. And so, yeah, that's I didn't think of that until just now. That how many have you got of those? You've got you've got the Honda RC45. VIN number zero 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 one. Uh, what else have you got? Uh, Bomota YB11. But, right. Uh, Bomota. The very first production Tezzy. Yeah, the Tezzy. Uh, Which is actually technically VIN number seven, isn't it? But yes. the six were prototypes that were destroyed. Yeah. So it's the very first registered Bomota yeah. Tezzy. And the, the Bomota SB6 and the Bomota SB8. Those are all VIN number one? Yes. Wow. And then um, <laughs> getting back to Ducati, uh, they made what they called the Donna Karen bike. Right. And it was a collaboration with Araldo uh, Ferracci, yeah. uh, Donna Karen, and AMA Superbike. And, right. and so they came up with this 748L. It's, that's the distinction from the factory, the 748L. Right. And uh, so you could buy that through the Neiman Marcus catalog, and they only made a hundred of those bikes. Okay. And Donna would send you uh, a jacket a and jacket, a pair yeah. of gloves, <laughs> and then y you told them what dealer that you wanted your bike delivered to, and, and that's how you got it. And that bike is also number one. Right, of the hundred, yeah. Yeah, and then the MV Augusta, the F4, Right. Um, they made uh, the Siri Oral, 
And the first one of those was given and presented to the king of Spain at the time, King okay. Juan Carlos. Okay. And he was given that bike. Well, when, when the F4S came out, the Strada, uh, Daniel Schoenwald had to buy his. It was, <laughs> wasn't a factory gift. <laughs> so disappointing. <laughs> I bet King Wallace, Juan Carlos was pissed. He's like, what? <laughs> so I think there's a couple other bin number ones. Uh, yeah. It's, it's just the detail. It's Sometimes detail. you get lost if you think about That's the detail. That's very cool. <clears throat> but I guess of the of the probably the two preeminent bikes in the collection really is the Brof Superior. That's an SS100. What year is that? 1930. 1930. I have to say that's one of the nicest Brof Superiors I've ever seen. Um, and I've seen a few of them. So Arthur, uh, I've heard the story and it delights me to hear it. So tell me again. Dad, tell me a story. No. Tell me a story about <laughs> about uh, the history of what you w would um, oh, think is history. We, I mean, we all... It, oh, it's my, of my grandfather? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My, my grandfather was uh, d Deputy High Commissioner of India. He was, and at the time, he was the... In 1930, he was the uh, head of customs and excise in Calcutta. And your broth is known as the Calcutta broth. It was sent out to Calcutta to a wealthy young man who who was um, who I guess probably his family bought him the the uh, the commission as the head of police in Calcutta. Now <coughs> I happen to know, although I never met him, I happen to know that my grandfather was into motorcycles, and I've got a couple of pictures of him riding motorcycles. Now, what do you think the chances are? One hundred percent. Two English gentlemen living in Calcutta in 1930, both riding motorcycles, and one of them has the ultimate motorcycle, the Brof Superior. And I'm pretty sure my grandfather would have been standing there going, dude, you've got a Brof Superior. Can I have a ride on it? Yeah, I, I believe <laughs> I, that story. He had to. I mean, I, maybe not, but I'd be willing to bet he probably did. Well, growing up overseas myself, I know that the expat community is very tight and very small. Of course. And so it, it, it's 100% it sure that has the to be. they knew each other. They knew each other. I, I mean, anyone, any guy riding around in Calcutta on a Bros Superior in 1930, this is a motorcycle that's worth more than, more than a house at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's a very special machine. It's special now, as so it must be. It was been special in those days. So, yeah. Well, this breath, also known as the Indian breath, the, the Calcutta breath, um, some of the particulars with that bike is it. It doesn't have a full handlebar. It, they're not clip-ons, but they're individual bars. Right. And I've never seen another breath with with the individual with the bars. Individual bars like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the uh, Lawrence of Arabia bike. I mean, Lawrence of Arabia had seven. I think he had his eighth on order when he was killed on one of them. Sadly, lost his life on, on one of his beloved Brough Superiors, but... Yeah, he, he was... Um, he had an incident with the road, and yeah. he lived, 
and it, they took him to his house, which was just around the corner, and he died, I think, 10 days later or something Yes, like it was that. A, definitely a, a week a or so, a week, yeah. yeah. What a great ambassador he yeah. he was to motorcycling, and yes. if he was around today, uh, yes. what an amazing person to probably yeah, sit and listen to his stories. One of his quotes, and this isn't quite right, because my memory's failing, but something along the lines of a skittish motorcycle with a touch of blood in it is more exciting than all the riding animals on earth. <laughs> True story. True, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so then I guess, I can't say it's the pinnacle of the collection, but it's probably the bike that you're best known for has to be a 1942 Indian? Scout. Indian, Indian Scout. Scout. A 1942 Indian Scout. I've ridden it many times myself. I have to say it's not the most comfortable bike I've ever ridden. <laughs> I typically end up with a backache. But how did you end up acquiring this particular bike? Oh, so Otis Chandler was one of the most amazing people I've met in my life. So this is the Chandler family that publishes at the Los Angeles Times. Yes, and, and he had a collection of cars and bikes, and uh, wild animals that he hunted down. I wasn't really interested in the animal collection, but the bike and the motor, uh, the bike and the motor cars were, were you know, uh, very special, inspiring, yeah. very special to yeah. to go down and, and look at. Um, but he was a hunter, and once he hunted down that motorcycle or car or animal, not the animal, but the, the car and the bike, he, he lost interest. He, he was, it was the hunt. Oh, and so after a while, that bike or car usually would disappear. And and it was replaced with something even more magnificent. And so I hung out with him and he knew that I would like to have that, that motorcycle. Right. So he calls me up one time and says, Daniel, come get your bike and I want this much money for it. And I thought, oh, gosh, that's way too much money. I, I can't pay. And this, 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 was this was owned by Steve McQueen. Yes, and uh, so it was supposedly his favorite motorcycle. Okay, Steve uh, McQueen's favorite motorcycle. Yeah. Yes, now uh, it, uh, it was sold to a doctor in the South Bay, and uh, this doctor was given uh, one of the brochures, and it's like a magazine, but it, it's got a description of the lot and the lot number and and what what the bike was uh, about and what have you and so this doctor in his own handwriting wrote down the the price of everything and whatever comments that he could quickly scratch in there so this doctor uh, tr sold that bike to Otis Chandler so he that could fund uh, the special 50s car that he bought and so Otis had it for some years. And it was time for it to go because he 
was bored with it. The hunt was over. And uh, yeah, so he calls me up and, and says, come over. And I said, no, 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 not at that price, thank you. But when you come down to reality, call <laughs> me back. So he calls me back a couple of weeks. And <laughs> I, I knew it was just a game that we were playing. And so the third time he calls, he, I thought, well, what? I don't want him to, you know, uh, think about some giving it to somebody else. So uh, I said, it's not worth a penny over X. <laughs> and he goes, bring a check. <laughs> so I, I, I was like beside myself. I got in my truck and I drove down to his museum, picked up the bike. Where before I picked up the bike, we had um, to do a little business. I pulled this check out and I gave it to him, and he looked at it and I, I thought, you know, man, I'm I'm messing up. Something something's not right here. And then I realized, oh my gosh, um, <laughs> I, I put it for a penny under X, <laughs> and he thought I was gonna g give him a check for X, <laughs> and you know. For this moment, I thought it, it, it seemed like a geological moment in time, but actually it was just kind of a nanosecond. <laughs> but he, he looked at me, looked at the chat, and put it in his pocket and says, um, something memorable. You know? <laughs> and so, um, so, so the bike was mine. So he sold it for a penny less. A penny he, less. He did sell it for a penny less. And, and by the way, <laughs> I won't take a penny less. <laughs> I, I, I thought, well, I, I can't pay more than twice what another motorcycle uh, is worth. Right. E even if it did belong to Steve McQueen, and even though I, I have his title with his name on it. Right. Misspelt, by the way. Right, Steve McQueen. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, yeah, but so. I have a, a Black Shadow, 1954, the year I was born. 11,000 original miles, uh, untouched. Otis sold that to me. And uh, and he says, and bring your checkbook. <laughs> <laughs> he was on to me. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the crazy story about that, when I got it, um, Otis was so fastidious and he, right. he was like, Everything, paperwork, everything, it's all proper, all prim and proper. And uh, and I said to Otis, Otis, I, I have a favor to ask you. And I, I'm not the world's best body language reader, but he, <laughs> he took a step back, folded his uh, oh, arms, and looked down at me with the hairy eyeball, like, okay, you scam artist, what? What are you going to scam out of me? <laughs> and that's when I whispered, can I leave it here until my wife's kitchen is finished? <laughs> <laughs> and he broke up laughing and laughing. You know. And, you know, for, for from time to time, my wife, Felicia, would uh, take me down and he, she'd drop me off. Right. And I'd stay all day and uh, hang out with Otis and, and Henry Fuchs. Right. Sure. One of his... Uh, his curator. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so whenever uh, the times that Felicia would drop me off, he would come 
running out of the museum with the big boyish smile and a grin, and he'd say, hey, Felicia, how's your kitchen coming along? <laughs> <laughs> awesome, awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, there are lots of other bikes in the collection and a whole bunch of stuff more to talk about, but uh, is there anything else that do you, I mean, it, it, I can't ask you if you have a favorite because. Yeah, I do have a favorite. You do? It's that 1970 Norton Commando Fastback. That's yeah. my favorite bike. The red and the silver one. Um, I used to say when people would ask me, what's your favorite bike? I'd, as your kids, you know, they're right. all your favorite. But um, right. I, I used to say that, oh, my favorite bike? Oh, it's this one, the one I'm riding right now. Right. But actually, the that Fastback's my favorite bike. Yeah. Um, it, speaking of a collection, uh, there's a few regrets uh, about the bike that I don't have. <laughs> uh, the one that got away? The one either got away or just wasn't there. So Otis had two Crockers. Oh. And okay. he wanted me to buy one of them. But I wanted the other one. And so uh, he wanted to keep that at this time, and so it, as it turns out, the the Crocker that he wanted to sell me w was the better of the two. I just didn't realize it at the time. Oh. And uh, so the one I wanted had all these brass fiddly bits on it, and it, it was pretty cool, but uh, anyway, the one that, I, I guess that did get away because I, I didn't end up getting it. But right. that was uh, the Crocker, but that's the bike that got away. Right. And uh, I I heard about um, a Britain motorcycle that was available. Wow. But, um, it, it was just it wasn't a rumor, but it was a uh, I just heard that it was out there, and. I, I kind of wish that I chased it down. Right. I wish I was the hunter at right. the time that Otis, especially if I had his uh, <laughs> his paycheck, <laughs> right. uh, I would have hunted it down and, yeah. and, and got the Britain. Yeah. And years yeah. later, um, I'm at I'm in Australia with my wife's family. I'm behaving myself. We're going off to this um, Christmas caroling party at a friend's house, family friend. And uh, so I'm, I'm not much of a singer. And I'm sitting there drinking white wine, behaving myself. And and this young lady, a little bit younger than me uh, at the time, this lady comes up. And, and I got on like a house on fire with her. And we talked and talked and talked all night. And it was fun. And then so Michael, who he was the host of the party. He came over the next day, which was Christmas morning, and was giving the family all these gifts for Christmas. And he goes, oh, I saw you talking to Marguerite. You guys had so much to talk about, I'm sure. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> and he goes, yes, Marguerite. Uh, that's John Britton's uh, twin sister. 
And I never knew it. We didn't talk about motorcycles that evening. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Oh, I didn't realize he was a twin. Yeah. Boy-girl wow. twins. Wow. And then, so years later, uh, there's this really awesome sculptor, uh, uh, Jeff Decker, and, and he says, Daniel, you know all, uh, you know all, all about bikes and what have you. Uh, I'd, I'd like to get a Briton. Have you ever heard of a Briton? <laughs> and uh, I'd like to trade some of my artwork for that. Wow. And I said, oh gosh, uh, <laughs> Jeff, you're a great artist, but you're still alive. Yeah. So I, I don't <laughs> I don't think you could trade that. Yeah. Now, now that he's made a name for himself, I, I wouldn't say that anymore, right. especially to him. But right. um, I said, no. Jeff, you, your artwork, you, you, you couldn't trade a, uh, a yeah. Briton for that. Yeah, no. Maybe so. And uh, if you ever go to the Harley Davidson Museum in Wisconsin, one of his sculptures right. is there outside. It, it must weigh 20 million tons. <laughs> right. It's all bronze and it's beautiful right, it's huge, sculpture. Yeah. Yeah. Story and a half tall, I think, or something. Right. Anyway, Jeff's a great guy. Yeah, yeah, cool. Great artist. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Daniel. I appreciate you sharing just a little bit with us about your collection. It's nice hanging out with you, Arthur. Usually, <laughs> I'm trying to keep up with you on the road, and we're, <laughs> no. we have helmets on, and uh, and you know, so it is fun to hang out with you and talk. You know, All right. it's one of the few times that we're not writing, <laughs> yeah. but you're you're an awesome friend, and you're a great writer, and there's very few people that I would choose to ride that close with through the canyons at speed. Right. Or even the track. It's fun. It's fun yeah. hanging out with you. Yeah, likewise. And it's fun seeing you um, <laughs> without your helmet on. <laughs> now I know what you really look like. <laughs> right, TJ? <laughs> All right. Thanks, buddy. <laughs>